Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. New episodes every two weeks. Find Historical Blindness on most podcast players and platforms. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, freaks, we came up with a great game. You're going to love this. You know, every Saturday night, uh, Kat and I will, will be making dinner in the kitchen, and we will um, we will play each other songs, and we choose a topic every week. Generally, there's a theme, and uh, it's not always great. This week, particularly not great. I don't know if you're like us, you'll wake up in the morning with a song in your head, and there'll be no rhyme nor reason as to how the song got there. So we thought, okay, here's what we're going to do. All week long, we're going to write down the first song that's in our head every morning and then create a brief playlist for the other person on Saturday night. Now, what were your what were your three top songs on the playlist this past week? Okay, it was that one by, oh, baby. Thelma. Thelma Houston. There we go. Don't Leave Me This Way. That's right. That one. Uh, followed by uh, Mama Said Knock You Out by LL Cool J. Uh-huh. Followed by The Mummer's Dance by Lorena McKennett. That was an eclectic mix. It was weird. <laughs> Mine was no better. Mine went from You're Beautiful by James Blunt into Rock You Like a Hurricane by the Scorpions and then into a McDonald's jingle. <laughs> Like so, from the seventies, so yeah, that was like real a weird. Classic Big Mac jingle from the seventies: the two all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Rock you like a hurricane. <laughs> You're beautiful. It's like one of those compilation albums yeah. from the nineties, yeah. except not a good one. Got a Facebook message from Ellie in San Diego who says, "When are you guys going to do a live show in California?" Why does she sound like Bill Murray in, I, in your... Everybody sounds like Bill Murray in my head. <laughs> everybody represents a different character that Bill Murray's played. It's, oh, I see. It's just my way of dealing with society. 
Well, we haven't booked anything West Coast yet, but that doesn't mean that uh, we never are. In fact, uh, there's some talk about things in the not-too-distant future in the California area, uh, a long way from you know becoming real. But uh, what is real is that the week of Halloween, we've got our mini-tour coming up. Yeah, we're going to be in Boston on the 27th of October. The 29th will be in Charlotte, and then the 30th in Nashville. Super jazzed. I may even do the robot dance on stage. No, I've got I've got some ideas for what you're going to be doing on stage. <laughs> okay. That's uh Does it involve a feather boa and a soothing ointment? Um no. I just had to work ointment in again. Anyway, it's going to be red. We're starting to get some really great costume ideas for the show. We haven't decided that we're doing costumes for the show. But there have been suggestions nonetheless. And we'll let you know if it if anything materializes and we end up doing a show in a city that starts with sand. So there you have it. There's all the information we have. Yeah. In the meantime, you can get your tickets to the existing real shows that exist on this plane of reality by going to theboxofoddities.com. You go first. To the website? No. Oh, like... For your story. Okay. Pew, pew, finger guns. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I was not expecting finger guns. Well, I'm just that excited. Nobody expects finger guns. Okay. So, I saw this meme, and it said, In 1929, the federal government poisoned alcohol to curb consumption during Prohibition. What? So I was like, what? Is that a thing? I don't know. And I don't often trust the memes. Mm. So I thought, I'll do a little research. So I went to Snopes and <laughs> Snopes gave me this result. It's a mixture of true and not true. Ooh, tell me all about it. So here we go. Let's start with prohibition in the United States. Uh, I went to the Wikipedia page just to get some basics on prohibition and The first thing I noticed was that at the top of the page, it says not to be confused with abolitionism in the United States. (laughs) What? Who's doing that? uh, I'm so confused. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they rhyme, you know, so. Do they? Do they? Prohibition, abolition. Yes. Yes, they rhyme. But I didn't say abolition. I said abolitionism. Oh, okay. Abolitionism, (laughs) prohibitionism. See, that rhymes. Yeah, but you're just saying different words. But they rhyme. Anyway, prohibition in the United States was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages. You know what else rhymes with abolitionism? What's that? Exhibitionism. That's true. Okay, go ahead. During the 19th century, led by pietistic Protestants to end... (laughs) Why can't I talk? (laughs) Whoa! Pietistic Protestants led the effort to end the alcoholic beverage trade. Promoted by the Dry Crusaders, as they were called, the movement was led by Protestants and social progressives in the Prohibition, Democratic, and Republican parties. It gained a national grassroots base through the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and after 1900, it was coordinated by the Anti-Saloon League, which I didn't even know was a thing. The brewing industry was shut down in state after state by the legislatures and finally nationwide under the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution in 1920. That enabled legislation known as the Volstead Act to set down the rules for enforcing a federal ban. 
there were some caveats like there were certain kinds of wine that were okay especially if they were involved in religious uh ceremonies what have you Uh uh-huh but for the most part no more boozy boozy time now this i got from slate.com a great article it says but people continued to drink as they will sure and in large quantities alcoholism rates soared during the 1920s Insurance companies charted an increase at more than 300 more percent. That's incredible. Just because it was prohibited, it became the forbidden fruit, if you will. That's part of the reason. But a lot of other social factors worked their way in. Women were more accepted in a speakeasy Speakeasy. kind of situation than they would have been in a... Let's call it traditional less, upstanding. Less drunk. Well, um, yeah. It was, yeah, it, sure. It was very strange. Very strange social situation that led to an increase in boozy times. That w- Those were the first ladies' nights. Oh, well, yeah. there you go. There's no cover charge. And if you wear disco ball earrings, then you get a discount on your first three drinks. Uh, that was a party that I went to once. Oh, was it? Anyway, so speakeasies. Promptly opened for business as as soon as this went into play. And by the decade's end, some 30,000 speakeasies existed in New York City alone. What? Yeah. Street gangs grew into bootlegging empires built on the smuggling, stealing, and manufacturing of illegal alcohol. The country's defiant response to the new laws shocked those who very sincerely and very naively uh, believed that the amendment would usher in this new era of upstanding kind of behavior. Sure. Morality. Like you you talk about the uh, women's Christian temperance Temperance movement or whatever it was. The big push for them was that guys who drink are deadbeats. Right. They spend all their money uh, when they get their paycheck. Right. They come home, they beat their wives. Right. Then they go back out and get drunk again. Right. And that was, we're going to end this. It didn't work. Life, as they say, finds a way. Uh, Crime syndicates, uh, those who wanted to sell alcohol, uh, discovered that they could just re-distill the commercial use alcohol that was still readily available in the U.S. That was kind of a loophole. It, It wasn't a loophole. It was the commercial alcohol wasn't banned. So people had that available to them to doctor. Oh, you mean like rubbing alcohol? That's right. I gotcha. So for years, the uh, industrial alcohol had been denatured by adding toxic or unappetizing chemicals to it. And the idea was originally so that people couldn't escape beverage taxes by drinking commercial use alcohol instead. So um, if you wanted to sell vodka, but you didn't want to be taxed on it, you might sell it as, you know, a cleaning product. But it's not, you know, everyone knows what it's for. But it was still possible to repurify the commercial alcohol so that it could be then consumed. Oh, I did not know that. This is where the chemists came into play. Crime syndicates, the bootleggers, were hiring chemists, and they could pay pretty good money, because they were making pretty good money, to figure out how to depoison this industrial alcohol. So as I said, manufacturers had been adding poison to industrial alcohol in America for decades. In 1906, Congress passed a law decreeing that 
industrial alcohol was exempt from taxes and the they added the stuff to make it undrinkable. However, it was discovered that um, oftentimes they were unable to uh, remove all of the poisons that had been put in the alcohol, but often it was enough that they were able to remove. So it was still drinkable. It just kind of wasn't mm. great for mm. you. Deborah Bloom, author of this book called The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in the Jazz Age, New York, writes that the easiest alcohol to convert was called Formula 39B, and it was mild. It was intended for perfumes and cosmetics and renatured it almost perfectly uh, turned into a very drinkable alcohol. As the federal government introduced formula after formula to try to make it less easy to denature, they kept adding more and more poisons. Good God. According to Bloom, by 1926, the federal government had retired three formulas entirely because bootlegging chemists had become so good at distilling the poisons away. As the years are going on and the government is adding more poisons, the bootleggers are trying to keep up. The government's trying to keep up. They're kind of in this back and forth war and people are getting sick. There were certain alcohols where if you had three drinks of this any of this alcohol then you could go blind it could cause permanent sure. damage to you it could even kill you yeah i mean i've heard stories of of people that have uh, consumed the wrong types of alcohol or uh, sterno you know stuff like that mm-hmm. and and actually did go blind well you've heard of the term blind drunk that is true there you go um Oftentimes, the victims were working class or poor people uh, because people with more resources could afford the imported alcohol that had been smuggled into the country. Sure. Whereas the people who didn't have money were buying this bootleg, redistilled rot gut pile that was just real bad. So by Christmas of 1926, it was impossible to ignore that this was a crisis. In New York alone, dozens of people died from drinking during holiday festivities. On the cusp of that shocking death toll, the federal government announced that they needed to add more poison. Uh Uh-huh. So the answer to there being too much poison is to add more poison. That's right. Officials ordered an addition of benzene oxidized kerosene, um, and that was mainly to increase the foul odor. They thought if they made it smell bad enough, then you okay. wouldn't be able to handle drinking it. Kind of like mothballs. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So this would become known as Formula 5, and three drinks, you were blind, you could die. Mm. Despite that increased danger, proponents believed that it was the smell, mostly, that would warn people away, but it didn't stop drinkers. New York Senator Edward Edwards called it, quote, legalized murder, because the government knew what was happening. They knew that people were still trying to make this work for them, and they were making it even more potent. The Anti-Saloon League, though, persisted, arguing that legal alcohol had killed more in its day than denatured alcohol would kill during the transition to a more moral world. 
And advocate Wayne B. Wheeler said the government is under no obligation to furnish people with alcohol that is drinkable when the Constitution prohibits it. The person who drinks this industrial alcohol is a deliberate suicide. To root out a bad habit costs many lives and long years of effort. Later that year, Seymour Lohman, Assistant Secretary to the Treasury in charge of Prohibition, even told citizens that the fringes of society that drank were dying off fast from poison hooch, and that, if the result was a sober America, a good job will have been done. Whoa! Really? Oh my God. So as I said, Christmas Eve, 1926, hospital staff tallied up more than 60 people made desperately ill by alcohol and eight died. Within the next two days, another 23 people died in New York City alone from celebrating, quote unquote, the season. In 1926, in New York City, 1,200 people were sickened by poisonous alcohol. 400 died. The following year, 1927, deaths climbed to 700. Holy shit. As Time reported, after one 1928 incident in which 33 people in Manhattan died over the course of three days, mostly from drinking wood alcohol, officials were still arguing about whether or not this was a a good effort. Well, it's easy to argue that it's a good effort when you can afford the good stuff. Right. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. In April of 1927, Popular Science magazine attempted to break down in an article what was going on. And they wrote this. Uncle Sam has been on trial before the bar of public opinion, charged for no less a crime than willful and premeditated murder. All right. So the government still working to find ways to work with poisons to curb bad behavior in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1930, they announced that they had found a byproduct of petroleum called alcatate. It had a nauseating odor of garlic and rotten eggs that would make drinkers violently ill without actually poisoning them. Um, but by that time, bootleggers had found ways to start brewing and they only needed like yeast, water and sugar. Sure. So yeah. um, they had really started their own industry. They didn't need this commercial alcohol anymore to be able to sell something that would work for people. So kind of too little too late at that point. By the 1930s, it was clear that prohibition had become a public policy failure. And the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution had not curbed the the consumption of alcohol the sales sure the production it changed and uh, but the, the goal was not met and while organized crime flourished tax revenues withered the united states was stuck in the throes of the great depression at this time and it just didn't make any sense anymore so in february of 1933 congress passed a proposed 21st Amendment, which would repeal the 18th Amendment. And even 17 of the 22 senators who voted for Prohibition 16 years earlier now approved its appeal. Yeah. Which I have to say is refreshing. What, a politician saying, you know what, Uh, I made a mistake. I just, I can't get over it. I think that's like the the best thing that I got out of this whole article uh, was that these politicians actually made choices based on what was best for the country rather than what their team was rooting for. Right. Thank you. 
it blows my mind. I'm I'm so excited about it. So anyway, uh, it was the first time in American history that a constitutional amendment had been repealed. However, I did say the whole too little too late thing. And in this case, that really does kind of ring true. Um, the the government poisoning program in order to curb behavior uh, by some estimates, had killed at that point at least 10,000 people. Good God. That's amazing. Holy shit. I had no idea. Yeah. Like I said, that that book really goes into a lot of great detail about the chemists involved because there were the government chemists and then there were the bootlegger chemists and they were kind of working against each other and the bootleggers could actually pay more than the government could. Right. Especially once they got into, you know, depression era and and the bootleggers were like rolling in it. And the government was losing all the tax money. Exactly. So really probably that was the motivating element to repeal the 18th Amendment. Not so much it was killing people, but that they could not collect taxes on it anymore. I like to think that it was a combination of all of the things, mostly the not wanting people to be murdered. Okay. I love your optimism. Thank you. Again, that book was called The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age, New York by Deborah Bloom. It's on my reading list. Thank you. You're welcome. It began as that stuff that didn't seem to fit anywhere else. It's become that thing in the middle. Here's a list of ridiculous excuses that police officers received after pulling people over for speeding. Number five. I'm dyslexic. (laughs) Sorry, I was going 55 because I thought it said 55, but it was actually 55. (laughs) That's a creative attempt. (laughs) Number four. Hey, I'm more sober than the other guy. Cops love that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Number three, but it's St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) Just because it's St. Patrick's Day doesn't mean that it's a holiday from the laws of the road. Number two, police officer pulled over a lady who uh, was driving by herself, but uh, declared it wasn't me driving the car. Who... Who was it? Yeah, she didn't say. Was it Shaggy? And she got me on the counter. Who was it me? Right? Yeah. So far. I'm in the shower. And number one, I didn't know which pedal was which. Yeah. That makes me feel like maybe driving's not for you. Uh, my dad's uh, third wife used to drive with both feet, uh, and that, that drove me crazy. Two words for people like that. Uber. Oh, honey, no. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science and you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. All right, who doesn't love a story, a good story about a curse? I love curse stories. I love curse stories, too, especially <laughs> curse stories about curses from the golden age of Hollywood. Ooh. The 1920s, interestingly enough. Same time period that your topic was. Synchronicity. Yeah. It's the curse of uh, Rudolph Valentino's ring. Ooh. Rudolph Valentino. He was really the first big screen heartthrob of the cinema age. Definitely an icon of early Hollywood. He was known as the Latin lover, even though he was born in the U.S. and just looked Latin. Oh, okay. Yeah. So kind of like you. (laughs) Yeah, I look just like Rudolph Valentino. Maybe how he looks today. (laughs) (laughs) He, He died At an incredibly early age, 31 years old, very unexpected. His fans were hysterical when he died. It is said that uh, to this day, his spirit haunts many well-known Hollywood locations. Oh, my. And it has to do with this cursed ring, this alleged cursed ring. But a little background on on Rudolph. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I started thinking about like the different types of rings. This is just, I guess, where I'm at today because I was all like shower ring, toilet O-ring. Like, wouldn't it be weird if it was a cursed toilet (laughs) (laughs) O-ring? This is never going to seal properly. (laughs) Well, a little background on Rudolph Valentino. He was born in 1895. Uh, He was born in New York, but he left shortly after. He turned 18 years of age. He was a dancer. And then he befriended a Chilean heiress named Blanca de Salas. It's unknown if if they were romantically involved. In fact, there have been rumors, and there were then and there still are to this day, that Rudolph Valentino may have been gay in the um, uh, the movie industry and the studios just didn't want that to to leak out because he was the sex symbol and they didn't you know right plus it was just wrong to be gay back then in the eyes of the studio or society bigots you mean yeah yeah okay but when she uh, finally divorced her husband valentino uh, he defended her in a child custody suit and um her ex-husband john used connections that he had politically and he got valentino 
arrested on uh, unspecified vice charges. Uh, they were sp- supposedly pretty pretty flimsy charges. Apparently, if they were unspecified. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. He did something. Yeah. Something he did. The scandal uh, meant that uh, Valentino had a very, very difficult time finding work in New York after that. And then when when uh, when Blanca shot her ex-husband to death, he thought it'd be a good time to leave and go to Los Angeles. Sure. Because he sure. thought he'd be brought into this and yeah. he'd be part of, you know, so he just left. So he's in Los Angeles and uh, he continued his dancing career. He started a dance studio. He taught dance mostly to wealthy, older clientele. He began to pursue some acting jobs as well. And he was cast in a few small movie parts. Mostly, he played the villain because he looked exotic. Oh, okay. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know. He looks brown. He must be the problem. <laughs> <sighs> Eventually, uh, a lady named June Mathis, who was a screenwriter, decided he'd be perfect as the lead in uh, the film The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which was released in 1921. Uh, it was just a huge success. In fact, it was the first film to ever make a million dollars. Oh, wow. But the studio did not want to give Valentino his his due on that. They did not want to give him star billing, and he didn't make as much money on it as he should have. And they refused to give him a raise or a more leading man's role. So... Valentino quit and he went to a, a different studio. He went to Famous Players Lansky Studio, which was one of the first big studios. They treated him with a lot more respect and they gave him um, the starring role of a movie that became his, uh, well, it made his career, The Sheik. Oh, yes. Okay. So he's at the height of his uh, popularity at this point. And it was it was frenzy. You know, you, you see old films of like Beatlemania Thousands and thousands of people waiting on the street outside of the hotel to uh, to meet the Beatles. Right. Same type of thing with uh, with Rudolph Valentino. He was in San Francisco and he wanted to kind of get away from the mob, so he put on like a you know a goofy hat and a coat and you know fake I picture glasses, fake nose. Yeah, I'm picturing a fake mustache, something mm-hmm. like that. He ducked into a small shop in San Francisco, and it was a, a, a jewelry shop, and he saw a tiger's eye ring. The tiger's, I love eye. tiger's eye. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Tiger's eye is a gold and brown quartz crystal. It has like this vibrant sheen that comes from the alternating bands of inclusions in the stone. So it's it's a very very beautiful stone. Valentino fell in love with it, and he bought the ring, despite warnings from the shopkeeper who told the actor that the ring's previous owners, several of them, had all met with misfortune. Seems weird that if you were going to bother warning him that you would even sell it then. Maybe he was just trying to drive the price up. Maybe. Maybe, maybe that's the thing. Yeah. I have a gorgeous tiger eye necklace that um, a nice boy bought for me um, at, at the Rock and Art Shop in downtown Bangor. That was for Valentine's Day, wasn't it? It was. It was yeah. like six years ago. Six years ago, I got her some jewelry. And that was the last time. Well, no, I got the wedding ring. Yeah, but I, I inherited that. So it didn't cost me anything. <laughs> So anyway, he gets this tiger's eye ring and he wore the ring while shooting his next film, which which was called uh, The Young Raja. Now, that film turned out to be a huge flop. In fact, the only flop of his his career, the film actually was lost until 2005. What? And even now, though, just fragments remain. 
Is it like there was an old warehouse on a studio lot and yeah. someone was going through film and found a little clippity clip of it? Probably. Because that's so cool. Something like that. It was another two years before he made another movie. He, um, I guess, seemed to think that the ring had something to do with that. So he stopped wearing the ring. He put it away and he started making his next film, The Son of the Sheik. Was that a sequel to yeah. The Sheik? Okay. I'm sorry. Is he playing Middle Eastern people? All the time. <sighs> okay. Mm-hmm. So a few weeks after the uh, the movie is premiered, and it's doing very well at the box office, I guess he's feeling safe now that the curse of the ring isn't going to bother him. So he puts the ring back on just a few weeks after the uh, film is released. Almost immediately after that happens, while he was wearing the ring, Valentino collapsed at the Hotel Ambassador in New York. And, you know, he's 31. People were like, well, what the hell is this? And so they rushed him to the hospital and they initially diagnosed him with appendicitis. But it was discovered that uh, he actually had perforated ulcers, which mimicked appendicitis. And to this day, that condition is called Valentino's syndrome. Oh, I did not know this. They were pretty confident, the doctors were, that they'd be able to... uh, to heal him, he'd make a full recovery, but he developed peritonitis and uh, his condition worsened and he died on August 23rd, 1926 at the age of 31. Hmm. Now his death caused mass hysteria among his fans. How many people do you think showed up? And there's old newsreel footage of this. How many people do you think showed up outside the funeral home on the streets of New York where he lay in state. 3,000. 100,000 people. A riot erupted when frenzied fans tried to break in and grab a last glimpse of Rudolph Valentino in his coffin. If you lived in Indonesia, you could just wait a couple years till they dressed him back up and paraded him through the streets. Sure. That was about the last that, episode. That was a we, callback. We talked it? about yep. in the last one. Okay. So while this riot is ensuing outside the funeral, two women in the crowd that were not allowed in or couldn't get in because the crowd was so uh, large tried to end their lives. They attempted suicide in front of where the hospital was, where he had died. They went over to the hospital and they were just going to end their lives there in front of the hospital. I don't. They were stopped. Is it well, they gruesome to be like, how? They, I, don't, I don't know, but because that'd be interesting to find out. I'm curious. There was a woman in London, as well as a man in Paris, who were successful themselves in ending their lives. What? While clutching photos of the late actor. Oh my goodness. The, it cannot be overstated how huge a star this guy was. And the fact that he died so young and so unexpectedly, people it just blew people's fucking minds. I can't even I can't even fathom that. Though I will say my most successful comment on Twitter ever was regarding Brad Pitt. So I mean, <laughs> I guess I get it. Okay. I, uh... All right. After the funeral mass in New York, Valentino was taken back to Hollywood, where he was laid to rest in the uh, Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Every year. On the anniversary of his death, a woman in black shows up and puts a rose on his crypt every year. Wow. At first, people had no idea what was going on there. It was very mysterious. Indeed. 
after a while, whoever it was died and somebody else picked it up and started doing it. And now it's like a tradition. Currently, film historian Carrie Bible carries on the tradition. Every year she dresses in black, goes to Valentino's grave, puts a rose on it. Now, what if two people decide that they want to dress up in black and put a rose on his grave? Is that embarrassing to show up at the same time? And Well, that happened and it ended in fisticuffs. Oh, my. It was terrible. Sure. So anyway, back to the cursed ring. Okay. After Valentino's death, his lover, Pola Negri, was given her choice of anything that was in his um, estate. And she chose the ring. And she immediately fell gravely ill. Oh, and they thought she was going to die. They took her to the hospital. Uh, she was there for a long time, gravely ill. Like I said, she did survive and uh, blamed it on the ring. So she stopped wearing the ring. Okay. And after that, she was fine. So you can own it. You just can't wear it. That's uh, apparently what the situation is. A few years later, she met a singer and actor named Russ Colombo, who was being described as a double for Rudolph Valentino. He Creepy. was supposed cool. to be the uh, the uh, second coming of Rudolph Valentino. And so she gave him the ring with a little note that said, from one Valentino to another. And I think at this point she was thinking, yeah, there's nothing, you know, with the ring. That's, you know. Gobble. Hooey? Yeah, hooey. Bush. What's that term? Bush. Bushwa. Bushwa. So she gives him the ring. And Seems like a bad choice. Days later, he was killed in a mysterious shooting incident at the hands of a friend. No. Ne- oh. Yeah. That's like, oh. loss of man whose name I forgot already. Russ Columbo. Russ Columbo. Yeah. Dead. Dead. Yep. Dead. All right. So dead. So at this point, what happens to the ring? Does well, she get it back? No. Is it, no. Okay. No, no. His best friend, Joe Casino got the ring Columbo and casino that sounds like a cop show from the 70s yeah now he was well aware of the reputation of the ring at this point so we put it in a glass case and refused to remove it kind of like annabelle he wouldn't even donate it to the valentine uh, valentino museum eventually after many years he decided well again the curse is bourgeois sure and he removed the ring from the case Put it on his finger. No! And then he walked out and got hit and killed by a truck. What? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I'm starting to wonder, like, did someone find that he had been hit by a truck, go up and get the ring and put it on his finger just to make it seem like, hey, this ring is... Because, whoa. So Casino's brother, Dell, took possession of the ring. He did not wear it. He kept it at his house. And one night... His house was robbed, and among the stolen goods was Valentino's ring. Oh, no. The thief, his name was James Willis. Was he impaled on the fence while he was trying to escape? Like the omen? (laughs) No. Almost as bad, though. No. He was shot and killed by the reporting police officer who swears the shot was meant as a warning. He said, I fired it over his head, but somehow the bullet hit the guy and killed him, and he had the ring on his finger. Whoa. I mean, that one I can totally get into because, yeah, when you lead a life of crime, you're more likely to be shot. It seems appropriate. Next was a figure skater. His name was Jack Dunn. He wore Valentino's clothing when uh, he went to a 1938 screen test for a biopic about Valentino. Weird flex, but okay. He borrowed the ring. Oh, no. He died 10 days later from 
tularemia. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a rare blood disease that he contracted from handling a dead rabbit on a hunting trip. Oh, no. The day after his um What happened audition. to it? The bunny? Yeah. He had Valentino's ring on. No, I don't know, sweetie. I'm so upset. So after Del Casino died, the executors of his will kept Valentino's ring locked in a Los Angeles bank vault. Over the years that the ring remained in the vault, the bank faced two robberies, a fire, a cashier's strike, and now the whereabouts of the ring are currently unknown. It disappeared out of the vault. They don't know where it is. Kind of like James Dean's car. That's weird. Interesting. I wonder if there's someone who collects cursed items. Oh, that would be a great, like, Stephen King kind of uh, book, plot, movie. So where is Valentino's ring? Nobody knows, but apparently Rudolph Valentino wants to know because he has seen locations throughout California reportedly looking for the ring. I know, that sounds a little hokey, but uh, that's the story. Some psychics say he's looking for the cursed ring. His ex-wife, Natasha Rambova, claims that uh, she saw his ghost in their home in Beverly Hills, Falcon Lair. And she said that uh, she interacted with his ghost and he does not know he's dead. It was said that uh, that his spirit resided at his mansion until it was bulldozed in 2006. His spirit? No, his mansion. Oh. You can't bulldoze a spirit. You don't know. There are no ghosts of heavy machinery. Seems like you're making up these rules. It's reported doors opened and closed uh, shortly after his death. Noises which his dogs did not react to. He was seen in the hallways. Could sometimes be seen in the second story window looking out uh, at the city. Millicent Rogers, who was an actress, spent uh, one night at Falcon Lair and uh, said she was, quote, chased away by the spirit. Actor Harry Carey said he had several encounters. Not that Harry Carey, a different... Cubs win. Cubs win. If the moon was made of barbecued ribs... Would you eat it, Norm? It's a simple question. (laughs) About a mile away were the Falcon Lair stables, where he spent a great deal of time when he was alive. A stable worker quit after allegedly seeing his ghost petting one of the ghost horses. So apparently there were ghost horses, too. So why couldn't there be ghost bulldozers? See, I stand corrected. Perhaps there there could have been. The house right next door to it was the house that Sharon Tate and her friends were killed in by the Manson family in 1969. It was the adjacent property right next to the stable. Interesting. Valentino's ghost has been said to appear at all of his former homes, various places on the uh, Paramount studio lots. He never worked there, but it's right across the street from the cemetery where he's, he's buried. Whoa. And also at a handful of Southern California hotels. And interestingly enough, he's been spotted at the Muso and Frank Grill in Hollywood, but only in the women's restroom. Well, that's creepy. That's weird, huh? And that grill, it's on, I think it's on uh, Hollywood Boulevard and that opened in like 1923, I think is what I read. Yeah, but and why isn't he dining there? I don't know. Maybe he's a specter with searing abdominal cramps. That it, may be it. It could be. That may be it. I wonder how many times in our relationship we've said searing abdominal cramps to each other. It's a pretty constant practice. <laughs> it happens quite a bit. We work very hard to, to maneuver that into conversation on a daily basis. It's a personal challenge that we've issued each other. In addition, two separate mysterious deaths 
have occurred near Valentino's statue at DeLongpre Park, both within a few years of Valentino's death. A 14-year-old girl was murdered there, and a 31-year-old woman uh, ended her life there. And if that's not enough, Valentino's dog, K-Bar, is seen haunting the L.A. Pet Cemetery in Calabasas, California. Apparently, he has little ghost dog tags on. Hi, if you see me in the afterlife, please call Rudolph Valentino's ghost. Are there are there many ghost dogs at that cemetery? Because I want to go. <laughs> you want to go pet the ghost dogs? I don't know. I mean, if they want to hang out, I'm in. So a lot of unexplained things happened around this ring. Um, Not the least of which is, where the fuck is it now? I know. I think it's interesting that just all of a sudden we don't know where it is. It's a lot like the James Dean death car. Yes, less hot dog looking, but yes. Right. His car was involved in all sorts of, and and parts of the car involved in all sorts of uh, weird, cursed type activity. People dying near it. And then it just disappeared. They don't know where it is. So maybe you're right. Maybe there is somebody out there somewhere collecting cursed objects. Now, is it because they're just interested or are they saving us from the curses? Because this this story could go either way. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. That's an interesting plot twist. I think the thing that fascinates me the most about Rudolph Valentino is Valentino mania from that day. How unbelievably popular he was at the time and probably we didn't see anything like that again until Beatlemania or or Elvis I think it's really interesting that they called him the Latin lover and yet had him playing Middle Eastern characters I mean those really different times (sighs) well not terribly I mean they just had Johnny (laughs) Depp playing a Native American that long that's true too yeah good point also I don't I wasn't we didn't talk about this, but you brought up the the Manson family situation. And so I thought I would say this. <clears throat> if you're looking for a good podcast that covers the Manson situation, uh, you must remember this is excellent and cool. covers a lot of different topics uh, about vintage Hollywood kind of business. And the Manson story is one of them. It's really great. Highly recommend. Five stars. The Box of Oddities lands on your phone a couple of times a week. We will see you again on Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to, to beseech you for assistance. The Box of Oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. I look like a field hockey player.